comes to you, these prayers, we point towards you. And now, Lord, we look at your word together as, as an act of worship. Continue to open up our hearts, our minds to hear what you have to say, Lord. And we give you this time. We surrender this time to you. We give you our attention. And it's in your name we say and sing these things as well. Amen. Amen, church. You guys can have a seat. We are in the book of Acts here at the chapel. We've been studying Acts for the last nine weeks. We'll continue on until we reach the last chapter in Acts. And today, we're in Acts chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn right there. We're going to be right in the first verse, and we're going to jump right into the story, because today's story is one of the most fascinating stories, I believe, in the whole book of Acts. And I think it's going to open our eyes to certain things maybe we've not seen before. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, and let me jump right in with us. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone else in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Well, Cornelius stared at him in terror. I think you and I would probably do the same thing. Angel shows up, you're like, what is happening right now? He is freaking out, and he goes, uh, what is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his own personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Now, to understand this whole story, I need to take you back to where this story took place. And so the setting of this story is in two locations. Uh, one is in Caesarea, the other is in Joppa. And I want to tell you a little bit about Caesarea. Caesarea was a place where Jews did not like the people who occupied Caesarea. In fact, Pastor Tony Meridian, oh, sorry, this is a map of that. I should tell you that first. First, here's the Mediterranean Sea, and you can see that Caesarea and Joppa right there on the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea is about 32 miles north of Joppa. And here's the reason why the Jews did not like um, those in Caesarea. So Caesarea was the capital of Roman occupation of Israel. It was a military town, and it's important to know that the Jews hated Caesarea. And the reason they hated it is because the Romans occupied their town. This is supposed to be their town. Here come the Romans. They occupy it, and they don't like the people that are there. In fact, they don't like Caesarea so much that they give it a nickname. Tony Meridia tells us this. They called Caesarea the daughter of Edom, a place of ungodliness that is a symbolic name for Rome. So that's what I can't even say the word. That's what it represented to those who were Jews. And we're going to come back to that and why that's important in a bit. Now, we have two main characters that we want to study. We have Cornelius and Simon Peter. Now, many of us who are familiar with the scriptures know who Simon Peter is. Peter is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He is known as one of the leaders of the church and as acts goes on, we see the impact that Peter has on the church at large. But I bet you that you don't really know Cornelius as much as we probably should. 
He's only mentioned this time in the Bible, but he is a key figure in about what's going to happen in a little while. Now let's go back to the top. Here's what it says about Cornelius. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. Now, the Italian regiment was a part of the Roman government, specifically the Roman military. And Cornelius oversaw this group of people, and as an officer, he probably was tasked to oversee about 100 soldiers. But the reason that the Italian regiment is important is these uh, soldiers were volunteers. They wanted to be a part of what Rome was doing, and because they were volunteers, they were some of the, the most dedicated soldiers known to man. And so here are these soldiers who are occupying Caesarea. And again, the Jews, they can't stand it. And they wouldn't be able to stand Cornelius because he's one of the officers in the Roman military. But what's interesting about Cornelius, and hopefully you picked this up, is that he's not a bad guy. He's not an oppressive person. In fact, he's a man of faith. Look what it says about Cornelius. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. When it says he was a devout, God-fearing man, it meant he worshipped Yahweh, the same God we just sang about. That was Israel's God. He believed in this God. He would have followed the Ten Commandments. He would have given generously. He would have prayed often. This was part of who he was. But the problem was he wasn't born a Jew. He may have worshipped their God, but he wasn't born a Jew. He didn't follow the customs and the practices and the dietary laws that Jews followed. And because of that, the Jews did not believe he was one of them. In fact, he would have been known as a Gentile, which simply means a non-Jewish person. And even though he would have worshipped their God, they would not have included him in fellowship. He would have been outside of what they were doing. But Cornelius, even though the Jews may not have accepted him, God does. In fact, his faith is so important to Cornelius that God honors that and he says this about him. He goes, look, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. So now we go to Joppa. Again, about 32 miles north of where Caesarea is. And here we are, and Simon Peter's there. He has no idea the day before that Cornelius has this vision. So here's Peter in Joppa, and look what's happened in verses 9 through 12. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up to the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals and reptiles and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Peter declared, no, Lord. <laughs> you remember Peter in the Gospels? He, he's wild. He just has, he is so stubborn. He's told to do something. He's like, no, I can't, I can't do this. He says, why? I've never done this before. I've never broken Jewish custom, Jewish law. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice said again, do not call something unclean. If God has made it clean, 
The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter is so confused. The beginning of verse 17 says it. He was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? Now, if Peter is a Jew, and he is very confused, you and I, who are not Jewish, I bet you you're confused too. So let me explain what's going on here. There are two different categories of food in the Jewish law. There was food that was labeled kosher, and that was labeled clean food. And Jews could only eat that food. And four-legged animals were not on that list. Four-legged animals were considered unclean or impure. So there were categories for food. And he gets this vision. You have to realize Peter grew up Jewish. This is who he is. It's what he has done. And God comes to him and says, okay, I want you to go and kill and eat these animals. Peter's like, no way. This rocked Peter so hard. And it was so confusing and so perplexing him. How many times did the vision have to be repeated to Peter? Three times. Remember in the Gospels, Peter had to be told something three times too? <laughs> it takes a lot for Peter to understand things. I like that because me too. Peter just can't even fathom this. He's like, he has to have it repeated three times. And still, he still doesn't get it. He is so confused and so perplexed. What could this vision mean? And so we read on. The rest of 17 and 18 says, Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. This is very important. I highlighted it for you. If you have your Bible, underline it. Standing outside the gate. Why is that important? Because the Gentiles, the non-Jews who were Cornelius' men, were not allowed in. There was a separation of intermingling, of socializing, of fellowship with Jews and Gentiles. So there was a gate, and they could speak through the gate, but they couldn't penetrate the gate. It was a separation, a categorical separation between Jews and Gentiles. And they had to stand outside the gate. Peter would have never, ever allowed these Gentiles in his home. Which is why we read this in verse 19. Meanwhile, as Peter is still puzzling the vision, he still can't grasp. What God is asking him to do, because it is not what he's used to. It is not what he's ever grown up knowing. The Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up and go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. Now here's what's interesting. Peter, he's no idea that these men are showing up. He just went up on the rooftop to eat and pray and he has this vision, and after he has this vision, here's Cornelius' men. They're standing outside the gate, and the Holy Spirit says to Peter, Look, I know you're not going to do this if I don't tell you. So I'm telling you, you need to go out there and open the gate. You need to go with these men, and you need to go back to Caesarea, which I know you don't want to go to because of what it represents. I want you to go to a man named Cornelius, who, by the way, isn't gentle. I know what you think about them, but I still want you to go anyways. What would you do? You were Peter. What if I told you that you have these decisions all the time in your life? There are things that we've been used to, that we've been told. Plans that we have, we have it labeled A, B, and C, but what happens when God says, I want you to follow plan D? That even though it doesn't make sense, even though I'm asking you to go somewhere you don't want to go, are you willing to go 
based on faith alone, based on just obeying what God says. You have to realize that at the end, the Gentiles are going to come to know Christ. Peter doesn't know that's going to happen. Peter has no idea what's ahead. And there are some times in our life where we say, okay, God, if you lay it out, A through Z, I will go, but what if he only gives you A? And the only way to know about B and C and D is to continue to trust him and obey him at his word, even though it doesn't make sense. Even though the vision is so perplexing, it doesn't make any sense based on history, based on what you know, will you still go? Peter had to decide, and never once in his life has he opened the gate, but he opens the gate, and he goes with these men, and they go back to Caesarea. Look what happens. A few verses later. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm just a human being like you. So they talked together and then they went inside where many others were assembled. Again, remember, it's not just Jews. Now it's Jews and Gentiles. Peter's going in for the first time. Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you, but God, underline those words, but God, you may think something, but God, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure, as unclean. Ooh. Peter, just like you and I, need to be repeated over and over again, and God's so gracious, not only will he repeat it, he gives him vision, he sends him here and gives him a life application right in front of you. Look, you go in there, and he's standing back, and he's seen Jews and Gentiles never to intermingle like that before, and there they are, and his eyes were opened to the vision. It wasn't about food. It was about people. For so long, the Jews categorized people. Jews, Gentiles. These people, those people. Physical gates, spiritual gates. Give me my people, give me my customs, give me my laws, give me how I worship, and I am good, I am comfortable, I am okay. Everyone else, stay out. And Peter, for the first time, sees that when Jesus has come, he has come to eradicate categories, eradicate everything, and remove the gate. So much so that we read a little bit later that Peter said, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And I forgot to put verse 36 on the screen. Let me tell you what it says. It says this. This is the good news for those in Israel. That peace with God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. Peter is looking at these categories, looking at people and separating them. He always has seen the gate and then he sees people through God's lens and he figures out that it's not Jews and then Gentiles and everybody else. It is all people. There is no list, no categories. All people belong to him. And the way that you have a relationship with God is not being Jewish, not following the laws, not following the rules, being a good person. The way to God for all people is through faith in the grace of our Lord Jesus. 
You know, I'm wondering as Peter's in this room of people he would never have been in a room with before. I wonder if Peter thinks back. I wonder if he thinks back to a time when Jesus called Matthew the tax collector to follow him. Remember, Matthew was a despised person. And Jesus says, we're going to go in his house for dinner. Religious leaders, they were out there. They had signs. You can't do that, Jesus. Don't you know who these people are? And Jesus just walks right in, sits down, has a fellowship with him. And religious leaders think he's wrong, but Jesus is like, no, this is the heart of God. Peter would be right there. I wonder if Peter remembers a time when Jesus went out of his way, like literally out of his way, to come to a place called Samaria. The Samaritan woman was there. The Samaritan woman had a shoddy past. Been with a lot of guys. So much so that she has to go out and collect water at noon. Why? Because no one else would ever go out that late. But because everyone pushed her aside, she went out by herself in the noon heat to collect the water. And there's Jesus just hanging out. And the disciples come back. What are you doing? She's a Samaritan. And Jesus says, I know. And I wonder if Peter thought, man, every time I was with Jesus, he didn't categorize people. He didn't put a gate between them. No favoritism. Only God's love and acceptance through Jesus. The Jews, they can't believe this. A few verses later, Peter was saying these things to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out to the Gentiles too. The Jews always thought it was this way, and then they saw it happen a different way, and they are amazed. Wow. For so long we saw the world through this lens, and now... We see it differently. That's the story. Pretty powerful. But I would be remiss to ask an important question. What does this mean for you and I today? We live in a world where we categorize people. Republican and Democrat. Conservative and liberal. CNN and Fox News. This color skin and that color skin. That's okay to do in the world because the world doesn't follow Christ. I don't know how more clear to make it. I'm not saying this, that you can blame Jesus. God said there's no favoritism. We can disagree with someone's perspective. We can disagree with their sense of morality. We can disagree with their life choices. We can do all that. But in the church, under Jesus, if you draw a line, you are not living like a Christ follower. If you put a gate up, you are not listening to the words of Jesus. You may put a gate up because that's what you think Jesus says or you want him to say and you may put people in categories because it's easier for you to see people that way but in the church there's no categories I mean you think me saying Republican, Democrat, Jew, Gentile holy smokes no categories so how do we do this let me give you a scenario this is a, probably a, a typical scenario Let's say that you're out with family and friends one day and you're taking lots of pictures. That's what we do, right? 
And of course, we live by the rule that if we don't put it on social media, will people know we did it? And so we have to put it on social media because, hey, it's a Saturday. We don't want people to think we're a loser on a Saturday. Hello. So we have to post social media pictures. And we're going through our pictures, and we find a picture. And we want to post a picture. And then what do we do when we look at that picture? Don't act like you don't know this. What do you do? You zoom in. But you're not zooming in on your spouse or your friend. Who are you zooming in? Yourself. Isn't it funny when you look at a picture? Who's the first person you look at? Yourself. (laughs) And we're looking, and there's tragedy. You got food on your face thought you put makeup on some of those zits. Those zits are just popping through. The lighting is just horrible. The person that took the picture doesn't know how to take pictures. You don't take it from down here. You always take it up here. I mean, come on. And yet that's the best picture, so what do you do? So now you have this horrible choice. I mean, this is like one of the most defining choices of your day. If I post it, I will look hideous, but it looks like I have a life. If I don't post it, people won't see my zits, but people don't know that I have a life. So what do I do? And then, as if God was speaking to you in a vision, just like Cornelius and Peter, you realize of the, one of the greatest inventions of history. Not electricity. I mean, that's okay. The printing press, mm. Social media filters. I mean, this is it. You realize, oh, thank God for this filter. And so what do you do? You put the picture, and you just start swiping. Nope, 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 nope. And then you find one that somehow the food isn't showing, the lighting's better, your blemishes, and you feel good, you you post what you did, and then you put it, Christ is averted, thank God. And you may say, what does this have to do with the Bible? Everything. Whether you and I recognize it or not, you and I wake up and we look at life through a filter. We put a filter over our eyes, and it is called our perspective. And many of us look through a filter that we were taught as a child. We look through a filter that we were taught through the Bible. We look at a filter that we don't want anything to do with the Bible. We look at a filter through how much money we have. We look at a filter through what the news says. We look at a filter through maybe a filter of fear and worry. I don't know, but we all look at people and all of life circumstances, and we lay a filter over it, and that's how we see. And Peter had a filter over his life. He didn't recognize it, just like you and I. We don't wake up and say, okay, let me put my filter on today. No, no, we just see it because that's just who we are. And here's Peter's filter in verse 34. I see very clearly God shows no favoritism. Which means what? God showed favoritism. Peter believed that God showed favoritism. He believed that because he was Jewish, he had an inroad to God. And no one else did. Because he was Jewish, based on his performance, based upon applying the law and and going after that and everything else, he put himself in this category and everybody else was over here. He believed he was superior and better than other people. That's why he stood inside while everyone else was outside the gate. That's how he looked at life. He didn't know it. Until finally God pointed it out to him in a vision and made it very clear that God doesn't show favoritism. No more categories. And now, God speaks to Peter and changes his perspective. Now he has a new filter. He asks Peter to filter out favoritism and replace it with a filter of faith. And with that filter of faith comes two very important things that now Peter sees for he did not see before. 
First, that all people, all people, all people, all people, all people are made in God's image. When you're trying to impress somebody, sometimes you're like, God broke the mold with you. No, he didn't. You're not special. I'm not special. I am in the mold of everybody else. We think we're special because we have looked at life through a certain lens that elevates us above others, but we're not special. We're all made in God's image. Peter finds out it's not about what religion you adhered to growing up. It wasn't about what uh, region you were born in. It wasn't about what skin color you are. It wasn't about anything. All people are creating God's image. You don't have to like them. You have to agree with them. They may have choices you don't believe in. That's okay. But it doesn't take away that they are the same person as you are when it comes to value. Second of all, he sees people, no more categories, all one people under the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means if they're not in Jesus yet, what is his opportunity? His opportunity now is to recognize somehow I was out here, God pulled me in through grace, now my job is to pull others through grace. I don't push them out in judgment, I include them in love and then I trust Jesus to do what only he can do in his life or her life. Perspective change. And so my question to you is this. Do you have a filter? Filter favoritism. And you may say, no, I don't. Peter didn't think so either. Peter had to be told three times. He had to be brought into Cornelius' home to see what he could never see before because he wanted God to say something that God never said. Do we see people through a lens of what we want God to say about them or are we seeing it through what the scriptures say about Jesus? Let me give you some practical examples. Let's say you work with somebody that is super annoying. I mean, like, when they come in, you all roll your eyes, you're like, oh, we can't stand this person. And at the lunchroom or wherever you have lunch, you're just hoping this person doesn't sit there because if they sit there, they're going to tell you about all their issues their whole life. It's just so annoying. If you look at her through a filter of favoritism, you will exclude her because she is not like you. Because honestly, you think you're better than her. But we won't say that. We're better than that person and therefore we'll exclude her. But if you look at her through a lens of faith, you realize, man, she is just like me. And maybe she doesn't know Jesus yet, but what if it's through me she may get to know Jesus? What if I include her, even though everyone else doesn't, and then when I include her, I get to know her. Isn't that funny? We never ask people questions. We just assume. We project. We get to know her, and you realize, why is she talking your head off? Because her husband doesn't want to hear it at home. Because her husband abuses her. And you're the only one that she wants to talk to because you feel safe with her. Huh. It's funny how when you get to know somebody, and you look past what they project, and you look at the heart, more people are like us than we... Think or, I think about the Bible or Christianity. We live in a post-Christian world where people uh, are not apt to read the Bible and go to church as much as they used to. And that can be really frustrating with us. And so when we look at life through a, fa- a favoritism, here's a couple ways that you know. One, you're fearful because you've obviously categorized them. They're outside the faith. You've, you're fearful of them. And we look at our actions and we see that. We judge them. We beat them over the head with the Bible and we wonder why they won't come to church. It's because we're looking at them not the way God does. No, they're not in the faith yet. But how are they going to come in the faith? Through you and I. We don't beat them over the Bible 
head over the Bible, we, we sit with them and we explain what the scriptures are and we walk with people through their doubts just like people have done with you. It's so funny. Once we get in and we categorize people, we forget what it was like to be them. What did it look like to look at people not through favoritism but through faith? Something historical happened on Friday. I don't think I have to tell you that. We know, as we look at the news, as we look at politics, we know that there's definitely a divide. And we know as Christ followers, this is something that has been prayed for for a long time. And finally, the government looks at unborn people the way that oftentimes Christ followers do, that they have value, that life begins in the womb. And while we rejoice with that and we thank God for that, I think sometimes we have put so much emphasis on the womb that we as Christians quickly forget that life begins in the womb and it ends in the tomb. And there's a lot of other people that oftentimes get forgotten because we put so much emphasis over here, and rightly so. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we put emphasis here. We forget all these people. And you may disagree with me. Let me give you some examples because I know I'm right. Do you and I fight for the rights of special needs people the same way we do as the unborn? Or are we normal here and the special needs are over here? I had a guy last night named Seth, texted me, he was here last night, didn't even see him, he's autistic, and he sent me a message this morning, broke my heart, he goes, Eric, I have autism, which I already knew, and he goes, people will tell me you should just act normal. He can't. And yet, in the church, he should come here just be loved on as he is. I think about, we're so excited about, finally, people recognize that life begins in the womb. Amen to that. But there are 450,000 kids in foster homes right now. What will you do about that? 83% of women who get an abortion believe it's the only way out for them. Here's the reason why. It has nothing to do with the baby. And all to do with they believe they are unloved. They have no support because the dad's not in the picture anymore. They look at their family and their family's abandoned them. So they believe the only way out is an abortion. Why can't a girl who's going to get an abortion look around and not see anybody, but then looks at the church and said, I am loved there and therefore I don't have to? Are we putting emphasis on those things? We put categories over everybody, and Jesus says, if you're in him, there's none. We want to do something about the special needs. You guys ever hear the Tim Tebow Night to Shine? It's a prom for special needs. We're hosting that in February here. It's going to be awesome. And I want you to be involved. In August, we're going to help a mom of six kids who doesn't have a place to call her own. And so often the world can just judge her based on her choices. Whatever she did, she's ending up here. As the church, we don't categorize her, we include her. So what are we going to do? We're going to uh, partner with Habitat for Humanity. We're going to build her a house on our property here. And then we're going to move that downtown Sandusky. We're going to continue to work on it. And we're going to give her the keys to the house. And you may say, well, did you see what she's done? She doesn't deserve it. And then my point is, either do we. We don't deserve it. It's grace. And when you see people the way God sees them, then we can offer them exactly what we need and are desperate for. God does not show favoritism. So if you and I do, we are not acting like we are supposed to as Christ followers. So all I'm asking you to do 
Maybe God has to tell it to you three times and bring you to a situation, but filter out favoritism. Replace it with a filter of faith. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for myself. I see everybody in categories. And usually it's so funny, Lord. I confess this to you in front of my friends today. My category is always right. Always. Always. Lord, you don't separate people anymore. We're one under you. We don't judge the people outside of you. We keep our eyes on you and we love all people. We bring them into the church and then you sort out their sin just like you're doing with me. Help people to know that there are no categories, no gates, no these people are those people, but everyone is one under you in this church and may we reflect it unto the world for your glory and for the good of those who need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday.